Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Let's get on with the sermon. So, this morning we're in part three of our Journeys with God series. Part one, I discussed what the calling of God was all about. The simple explanation of that was roughly God inviting people into a journey and experience uh, with him. That he was saying, come along with me, I want you to do something. He was beckoning, he was calling somebody or us, you, me, into a journey with him. And then we talked about journeys last week, but this week I want to talk about provision. Provision. But rather than give me give you a, a, a number of illustrations of God's provision to me or to us as a family, and I've shared many of them over the years, there have been many of them over the years, I want to move this beyond us simply thinking about God's provision in financial terms. Because God's provision is not simply about you and I getting by financially. It involves that, and I'm glad God does do that, and I've been the recipient of God's help and support regularly in that respect. But God's provision is not simply about money and about food and about drink, etc., although that is very much central to it. It is all the things that God wants to do for us as our provider and as our parent. And when I prepared this, I had these two pictures in my mind which kind of summed up the different ways that Christians approach God in terms of God's offering of provision, whether that be financial, material, or protective, or, or some other thing. Sometimes we can be like going to a stranger asking for a handout. We kind of go to him with our begging bowl saying, I've got this need, please would you... You know, you've got plenty in reserve. Would you mind giving me something to help me out here? But the other way, and I think the more biblically faithful way to consider God's provision, is not as somebody going to a stranger for a handout. It's a child going to a parent expecting him to provide what parents provide. When I go on holiday with my kids and they come to me and say, Daddy, I'm hungry, I don't go, oh man, just go and find someone on the campsite. Maybe they'll give you something. Don't bother me, I'm eating my cereal. That would be wrong. Why? Because I'm a parent and my children can expect of me to provide what they need. Because that is part and parcel of the relationship. Parent, parenting, being a parent, is, carries the responsibility of making sure we provide for our kids. And God wants to provide for us as his children. What God does for us in respect of his provision is in the context of his parenting. And that parenting is also in the context of his wider commitment to, to protect us, to look after us, which is in keeping with the concept of covenant. Now, I mentioned this beginning at the beginning of the meeting. I just want you to see a couple of things that... Um, I refreshed my mind with this week in, in regards to study. 
So God provides for us as a parent would provide for their children, not as a stranger kind of giving a, a handout. But this fits into a wider structure of how God looks after his people. Now, I haven't got chance or time or I sense the will from you to want to go into each and every one of these verses. But when God protects us and looks after us and provides for us as our Heavenly Father, he has a long and trusted history of taking care of his people in the context of what we call a covenant relationship. And a covenant is a committed, bonding uh, um, agreement between two people that comes with stipulations. It comes with uh, consequences in it. Now that's for another time, but basically it's, almost, it's not a contract, it's a, a, a binding commitment from one party to another to fulfil the requirements of whatever they've committed to do for one another. And this begins in, in our experience of God in the narrative of scripture right back in Genesis 4, not with God's faithful people, but with God's unfaithful people. Now this is really interesting, because when we try and conceive of God's provision, we automatically assume that we have to have been good boys or girls for our Father in Heaven in order for Him to fulfil His commitment to us as His parent, our parent. But the first time we see this mark and this covenant of protection actually happens with Cain in the beginning of Genesis. Now most of you, I would assume, know the story of Cain and Abel. I have to deal with the kind of Cain and Abel squabbles in our household most days. I know very well what it looks like to have brothers who want to kill one another, although Abel actually in the narrative didn't want to kill Cain, it was Cain that wanted to kill Abel. And I have seen very, very similar things start to happen in our home from time to time. Parenting is, you know, part provision, part separating kids from killing each other. But when God pronounces judgment upon Cain for the consequences of him killing his brother, Cain calls out to God for mercy. He's basically saying to God, okay, if you're sending me out from your presence and I'm out of your, um, the, the, the provision and protection that you would normally give to me, I'm concerned I'm going to be vulnerable and others will attack me because you will have kind of taken that, that hand away from me of your protection. So you get Cain in this dialogue with God. He says this, he says, I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But God says and responded, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then this is interesting. He says, then the Lord put a mark on Cain. A distinguishing mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Despite Cain's disobedience, despite him being judged as a murderer, God still in that cry for mercy agreed to provide protection for Cain because he called to God for it. And I think this is a very early glimpse of what you begin to see in the work of the gospel in the New Testament where Paul says in Ephesians, having been marked in him with a seal 
the promised Holy Spirit. So Cain is this first glimpse of what it looks like in how, uh, what it looks like in terms of how the gospel will work. People who are declared sinners call into God for mercy and God, despite the person's sin, responding because he is kind and merciful and marking out protection in, on people who don't deserve it. And so in the same way that Cain gets this mark of protection, we have this mark of the Holy Spirit as a covenant seal upon us. And if Cain can be protected in the covenant that he had with God, how much more will we be provided protection from the God who marks us with his very presence? Not only did Cain receive this mark, we don't know what that mark was, but we have the mark of God himself, the promised Holy Spirit. So this is this first instance of God offering protection, providing protection, covenant protection with his people. The next phase is we get uh, next phase of this is we get with Noah. So he goes on to establish this covenant with Noah, uh, and in the middle there, around where it's highlighted, it says, "But I will establish my covenant now with you, and when you enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, uh, you are to bring them uh, two of every living creature as well, male and female, and keep them alive with you." And basically what the result of that was that whoever was in the ark was saved from judgment. So we get this first glimpse with Cain who was marked for God's protection. And then the second phase of that was when God wanted to judge not just one man but he wanted to judge the whole world. The way out, rather than a mark now, it is an ark now. And so the hat, I didn't mean to rhyme that in my preparation but it's like I'm kind of wrapping this sermon so rather than simply have this mark, there's an ark, and they go into the ark, and the ark provides God's provision of protection over his people. So he protects them from judgment, and, and I believe as well in the New Testament, as we come into Christ as the fulfillment of that ark, as we come into him, we are also protected from God's judgment. I talked to you some weeks ago about Matthew 24, where it says about those people who were eating and drinking, giving in marriage, as it was in the days of Noah. And when the flood came, it took them all away. Who's the, all the people who were outside of the ark. Those who weren't in the provision of God's protection were swept away in judgment. It goes on as well to, to then from Noah to Abraham. God now moving from simply just wanting to protect people from judgment but also to provide for his people with Abraham he sets apart a man and his family to increase their family numerically so they become more than a family they become first a community and then a nation in their own right so not only is God showing in the scriptures that he wants to protect he also shows that he wants to provide financially because he blesses Abraham and he also oversees Abraham's protection as well. We know from the story of Abraham when he ends up in Egypt for a while and Pharaoh has designs upon his wife. Abraham says to the Pharaoh, uh, yes, that's my sister. She's lovely, isn't she? And Pharaoh is nearly going to try and take Abraham's wife as his own and God stops him. 
We get another glimpse of God's grace. Even though Abraham is lying to Pharaoh to save his own skin, God's covenant remains. God is still operating in accordance with his promises, even when his kids are misbehaving. It's amazing. So God promises now an inheritance, a people, a land that the, 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 uh, uh, the generations of Abraham will go on to inherit. Moving on from there, Moses, in fulfillment to what God promises Abraham, brings Abraham's children, his family, further down the generational line, who've increased in number in, in Egypt, but in slavery, brings them out into the desert to Sinai and makes a covenant, an agreement to provide for them. And it's kind of like the law now replaces the ark of Noah. When you were in the ark, you were protected from judgment. And when you stand in the law, the covenant that Moses has with God, with the people, that is your protection from judgment. As you stand in God's promises, you're protected from the consequences that everyone else is going to experience. So this is how God's covenant moves from actually a physical object to a criteria of relationship, a set of standards and principles, guiding principles about how that relationship would operate. If you keep the principles, there is blessing. If you don't keep the principles, there is cursing. There is basically consequences to not being in that place of blessing. So this is God developing his means and his mode of protection. Finally here, we get David and God um, promising him that he will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. So not only now has God kind of sort of offered this law and this way of relating to him as being a kind of an ark of his protection and covering over the nation, he's also promised to establish the nation of Israel in their land with a forever promise. So we get the mark of Cain, we get the ark of Noah, we get the provision of Abraham, we get the, the guiding laws and principles, this new ark in Moses, and we get this establishment of the nation in King David. So this is God revealing how he goes about his business of provision and protection. We get to understand how God does it. But there's this one verse I want to just draw our attention to now in 2 Kings which came out of a discussion between me and Nick McDavid this week, which I thought was very, very interesting. And it's going to be up on the screen for you here. And I'll explain why. So in 2 Kings 13, verses 22 to 23, it says this, Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. This is fascinating because over a thousand years after God made his promise of provision and protection to Abraham and through his son's line, Isaac and grandson Jacob, a thousand years later, God is still honouring his promises. Incredible. It blew me away this week. I can see it's not quite landed on you with such force yet. 
But I pray the Holy Spirit will allow you to capture the sense of magnitude of what is being said here. A thousand years later, the ups and the downs of a nation, people behaving or misbehaving, people doing well or not doing well, people being a success or a failure, people fulfilling their roles responsibly or fulfilling their roles irresponsibly, raising their children well or raising their children disobediently, honouring other gods or honouring Yahweh. Despite all of, that, all of that taking place in the life of the nation over a thousand years, and God, of course, intervening at times when it was necessary to discipline and school his people to get back on track. Still, a thousand years later, God is bringing compassion upon his people and protection upon his people, not because of them, but because of the promise of his word, which is left unchanging for generation after generation after generation. And the thing that got me about this was, if God can continue after a thousand years to honour a nation with his promise to Abraham and Isaac in the agreement that they had together, how much more can I trust the promise of God on my life because of the covenant I have with his son? The nation of Israel can point back the generations, thousands and thousands of years, saying, God, remember what you said when you made that agreement with Abraham, our father. And we can come to God and say, Father, remember us and the agreement that we have through your own son. Abraham's covenant was one with a person who was flawed and frail and inadequate. And yet God still honored it for a thousand generations. But now the promise we have through his son, if that was the power of that covenant, how much more powerful is the covenant and the promises God has with you and me? He is our heavenly father and he is well able to take care and provide for us. And that also, I believe, instructs us to understand or helps us to understand that it isn't solely reliant upon your performance as a son and daughter of God. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't discipline us or allow us to reap the consequences of our actions, which means that life often has a few bumps in the road that we wouldn't have had had we done things the right way. But that is very different to believing that we are suddenly outside of God's favour or his protection and his provision just because we've gone through a season where we feel that we have underperformed as sons and daughters of God. Because God is not treating you according to your performance. He's treating you according to the covenant promise that he spoke over your life. So that this week when you're going through your, your experiences and things look bleak or you feel that you've let God down or you feel that you've done something foolish, you don't need to doubt that God is going to come through with you because it's not about you, it's about the word that he spoke over you through his son Jesus. God is faithful and consistent and unchanging and stable and always ready to do the right thing, irrespective of how you relate to him. So if you've prayed well this week or not, God is the same. If you've done things according to his word or not, God is the same. If you're looking to him for help and protection, even if you feel that you have not honoured him in your living, God is still the same. Because it's not about you, it's about the honour of his name and the word that he has spoken over your life. God is the same. The same yesterday and the same today and he will be the same forever. 
And not only does this covenant come with this current provision of finances or of material things or of protection, it also comes with the promise of eternal life. Because when you and I pass away and it's our turn to kind of come to that point in our life where we have to depart this body, you can be assured that your standing before God hasn't been settled on your performance as a Christian. It's been settled on the performance of his son Jesus, which he said that he would attribute to your account and it wouldn't be based on your performance, it would be based on God's promise. So if you're good at praying or not, God's word still stands for you. If you're personally holy or not, God's word still stands for you. Now there are responsibilities for us as Christians, but it doesn't affect the covenant promises because God knows and he showed it with Cain, he showed it with Abraham, even Noah was certainly not a man without problems in his life and making mistakes. David, for sure, with Bathsheba, creating the circumstances by which her husband Uriah would be killed on the battlefront, the guy had a few blots in his copybook, as the old saying goes. And yet God's promises for David was to have a man on the throne forever. When God said that, he wasn't ignorant to what David would do with Bathsheba. And yet his promise came, because he wants us to understand as his kids, that what he does for us is to model the heart of a good father that whatever you do, you need to do in, in, as best as you can. But ultimately, God's provision remains the same. So this is the heart of God's provision. The heart of God's provision is about covenant. It's about promises. And if these guys in the Old Testament had the promises that they had, how much more should we be rejoicing in the promises that we have through his son Jesus? Because when he looked at the state of the nation of Israel, he saw their misbehaviour, he reminded himself of the flawed servant Abraham who had originally received the promise. But when he gets to look at you, he looks at the perfect offering of his son Jesus as his point of reference for what he does with you. And God treats us as if we were Christ because God treated Christ as if he was you. That was your cross that you deserved and it was my cross that I deserved. And yet now God treats us with the benefits as if we had never sinned. This is the incredible thing about God's covenant. So for the people of Israel as they learned about God's provision, they were learning about God's faithful promises for their life. And there have been times when I have seen God come through for me financially there is a part of me that kind of feels that I deserved God to come through for me. I'm like, I've been a good boy, God, for a couple of months now. <laughs> Do you know that bill that needs paying? I kind of deserve you to pay that. And the times when that has happened, God's provided for me. But there have also been times when for a couple of months I, I can't say to God I deserve that, and God still comes through for me. Because it's not about me. It's about him. When we were in Monaco, there have been so many financial miracles that God's done over the years, it, 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 it takes too long to, 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 to recount. But one of them that stands out in particular was that um, Nikki had wanted to go back to the UK to see her mum over a Christmas time. 
And we hadn't been away in Monaco ever over Christmas. We'd always gone back. And so for, I think for a year or two years as it happened, we'd come back to the UK. And she said, well, I want us to go back. And I said to her, okay, well, as the Lord leads or provides, that will be possible. So I looked in the bank account. It was probably just enough for us to get our flights back to the UK to, to have that Christmas. And then a tax bill came through from the French government. Now, any of you who's lived in a different country to the one you're in, one of the things that can catch you out are taxes because the system doesn't work in accordance with the one that you're used to. So stuff can come at you left of field. And it was a thousand euros, a thousand euros. And when that came through, I was not a happy bunny. Now, it, it, it's not as if I was angry at the French or at the French system per se, I was just slightly angry because it didn't feel fair. I said to God, well, I'm out here on the, on the mission field serving you. I'm doing what you've asked me to do. I've promised my wife she can go home for Christmas. I've raised her sense of expectation. And now the French have the audacity to send me this tax bill for a thousand euros. I was not ready to sing the French national anthem. So I was a bit down the dumps and my attitude towards God was not good. It wasn't that I hated him, I just felt a little bit hard done to in terms of the kind of the economy of how he works. Because I felt that I was being a good steward, I'd been a good parent, I'd been a good husband, I was being a man on the mission field and yet there was this bill. And I didn't want to go to jail so I paid it. And I didn't tell Nikki that I didn't have the money to get us home. And it wasn't as if I was hiding it from her. It's just I've got to pay the bill and get on my knees and pray about this. And I remember my attitude before God when I was praying and saying, Lord, I am sorry my attitude has been stinking right now, but this is messy and I don't know what to do. Two days later, two days later, a missionary family from America, a guy who was uh, actually going on to, to, to go to North Korea because uh, he did uh, some evangelism in North Korea. Now, it, it is possible to do evangelism in North Korea, but it's very, very difficult to do evangelism in North Korea, as most of you who know the context of North Korea will understand. He went in as a, a, a kind of a, a person who would teach surfing and extreme sports to North Korean kids. And while he was there, he would have conversations with them. And they would say to you, oh, you know, what, you know through a translator, what about you? you know, what's your life about? And you would say, well, I'm a, a pastor in America, and, and I just like to teach sports to international kids. And that was his line. And he would be allowed to carry on without getting arrested. It was God's protection on him. So he'd known the faithfulness of God. He'd done this in Pakistan in heavily kind of his, Islamic uh, areas. And he'd also done it in Iraq as well, and in Iran. He'd been over the world doing this kind of undercover evangelism under the auspices of him being a, 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 um, a sports trainer. So he was, he part, what he did was he parked his wife and his two daughters in Monaco with an American lady, and they stayed there, and then he would go on to North Korea or Iraq, or wherever he was going. And we had them over for dinner. And we, I knew that they didn't have a great deal of money themselves. They were on the mission field like we were. And he said, I was about to come. He took me inside into the kitchen. And he said, before I came here tonight, I was just packing everything together. 
And he said, God stopped me before I went out. And he says, you need to put a thousand euros in an envelope and give it to that pastor that you're seeing tonight. And he said, I don't know what this is for. He said, I don't care what it's for. My part of the responsibility is to honor what God has told me to do. And he put that envelope in my hand. Now, God's done that kind of thing a, a number of times for us over the years. And I could go into other stories. But why I recall that is because God did it despite my attitude, not because of it. Because it wasn't about me, it was about him being my dad in heaven and providing for his kids. It was about the promise he made to me when I confessed Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. It was at that point when I said, I take Jesus as my Saviour and my Lord. He says, well, that's great, that's going to come with benefits for you. And here it is, when your back is up against the wall and even when your attitude is stinking, I'm still going to take care of you because you're always going to be my kid. That is the promise of God. It's rooted in his nature and in his character. Now, there can be seasons, however, and this is kind of a caveat to that, where that provision doesn't always kind of seem to overflow. Getting this back into the context of the story of, of the nation of Israel, when Moses brings the nation to Sinai, they receive the covenant, they get the law, there's all the consequences and benefits to that laid out to them, and, and, and all of the story that goes on around that. They then go into the desert and they're there for 40 years and God's provision for them was manna. And the word manna actually means, what is it? What is it? And it was like this kind of slightly sweet bread-like substance that they would get on the floor. And eventually God was kind and he added quail to their diet and gave them some quail in addition to the manna. So we don't really have manna around today, although I've heard that there is a place in Sicily where it still grows on some trees. There's some sap in a particular tree in this area of Sicily which produces this manna-like substance. So it was this kind of slightly sweet bread uh, uh, that would appear for the nation of Israel on the floor. Now when that happens once or twice, that's amazing. But then when you realise you're going to be stuck in the desert for many decades, it seems a little bit hard going because it's very repetitious. Now I can eat beans on toast four or five times in a row, but if I have to eat it for 40 years, suddenly beans on toast doesn't seem quite the, the meal it once was. So God's provision sometimes looks like his sustaining. But that sustaining is not the whole picture because he's leading towards something through the sustaining, which is the land flowing with milk and honey. So God shows that in seasons, not always does his sustaining seem to be some overflowing opulence. It wasn't like the nation of Israel woke up in the desert every morning and there was angels with silver service, bringing them caviar and champagne. This wasn't Prosperity Gospel 101 for the nation of Israel. It was enough to get them through. It was the basic provision they needed for the season that they were in. So sometimes God's provision and his protection doesn't seem particularly scintillating. But it's enough for what we need to get us through the season that we're in. But the final point is this, when they get to the land flowing with milk and honey, and this is, a, this is a, a story I need to reinforce to my kids a bit more than I do, is that when they get to the land flowing with milk and honey, the season of God's miraculous provision ceased 
and the time of reaping and sowing began. Because when they moved from the desert, there was very little they could do to cultivate the land. It was there given to them on a plate. But the next phase came when they get into the land and they begin to settle there, they actually had to look after their own sheep. They have to put seed in the floor. They have to wait for the rain to come and water it. There was a responsibility for their lives to help cultivate the blessing that God had offered to them because it wasn't going to be gifted to them every time. It came with some hard work required as well. They still had to put a shift in to activate the potential of God's blessing. And I often say to my boys, it's fine that you can come in this kitchen and demand your sixth packet of crisps for the day. You're going to look like a, you know, a packet of walkers by the end of this school holidays or whatever it is. And that's there for them. I don't expect them to go out and do a job in the garden to get a packet of crisps. But you can't live on crisps. But I say, there's going to come a point in your life when you're going to want more than just your mum and your dad to give you some crisps and some dinner. You're going to want to release your potential. But unfortunately, you're going to have to put in some work as well to release that potential. You have some responsibility to begin to work in accordance with the promises of God. So that's why it's not a sin to have a job. That's why it's not a sin to work hard. Because God's offering of provision does require, to some degree, our cooperation. Giving us everything we need for our enjoyment, but there is still seed time and harvest. There is still sowing if we want to have reaping. And so God's provision moves to the stage of sustaining provision to the, the full potential which re requires our cooperation. But just in closing, therefore, just to kind of bring these things together, the main thing we need to understand about God's provision is that it comes in the context of covenant. It comes in the context of promise, not on performance. And there can be seasons that we go through where it feels quite meagre. It feels like manna and quail on the floor. But there is an offering of milk and honey that is hopefully not too far around the corner. But it often requires our cooperation to release the potential of that season. That we don't just simply sit there and allow the milk and honey to overwhelm us and appear in front of us with that heavenly silver service. Although there can be moments where that kind of thing can happen, God can break in with an extra blessing. But there are seasons that God works for. So if you're in a season where it feels like you're just on the manna and the quail, don't accept that as being the final story. That's not the best that God has for you. But if you're moving out of that season, also understand there can be times when your cooperation is needed. A little bit of press through, a little bit of faith like Joshua and Caleb to go in and take hold of what God has said. He wants for you. But all of it operates within his divine promise, this protective circle that he draws around you and around me. And even if you're a murderer like Cain, or you're a liar like Abraham, or you're an adulterer like King David, God's promise is still there for you. And if he can remember it for a thousand years for his people, he can remember it even enough for your lifespan, for you and for me. God's memory is strong enough for that. Let's pray. We've come to the end of this week's message. 
We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.